The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Well, good morning, everybody, and I uh, just want to uh, welcome you here, especially our visitors. We, have a, we do have a lot of visitors here today, so really appreciate you being here, and uh, so we welcome you and also you who are watching on the live stream, um, and I'm going to be uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 42 this morning, so if you would open up your word to chapter 42, I'm going to read through Isaiah chapter 42, and then we'll pray. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says, the God, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf, as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered 
and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful for this time together, for this absolutely gorgeous morning, this beautiful weather, the breeze. Lord, it's lovely, and we thank you for it. And we thank you that this is the day that you have made. We ask your spirit to come now to uh, be with us in our, um, in our time together. Lord, would you speak to us through your word, cause us, Lord, to have soft hearts, to hear and to obey, and may we walk differently today, having heard your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, Chris gave an excellent summary of the first 40 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Uh, so I will not go back through all that. Uh, I do hope, though, that you will re-listen to that sermon at some point at least, at least once during this series so that you'll be refreshed and remember the big picture of the book of Isaiah uh, as we go through kind of the, the more nitty-gritty details. I think you'll find that to be very valuable. Uh, one thing I would like to remind you of, though, is that uh, this is written very differently than what maybe you're used to reading uh, in the Word. This is not a set of instructions. It's not a historical account. Uh, it's not a description of the law. Rather, it is primarily poetry and oracle. And so these things do not have a real familiar ring in our ears. They're pretty mysterious sounding to us in a lot of ways. And sometimes the verb tense even changes uh, in the middle of a passage, not to mention pronouns uh, that are referring to different individuals, uh, sometimes referring in one instance in the singular form and in another instance to a whole group of people. So. Uh, it can be a little confusing. So uh, also, if you don't know this, the chapter and verse designations uh, in your Bible are not part of the original scriptural manuscripts. They were added later by scribes as a handy way to refer to specific places in the word. Uh, so when Isaiah wrote all of this, he didn't finish up chapter 41 and tie a nice bow on it and, and, and say, okay, that's that. Now I'll move on to my next thought in chapter 42. Uh, and also the scribes didn't necessarily transition these chapters at a time that makes logical sense, at least not to us. And so I'll try to point out where this becomes important in today's text. But it's vital for you to stay in tune with the word and to trust the Holy Spirit to guide our reading and to teach us what he means. I'll do my best to explain what I can as we run across these things, but I'll need you to hang in there and to remember that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's up to us in faith to breathe that in. And one last thing, in your Bible, the translators typically use the phrase, the Lord, uh, in all small capital letters to render the Hebrew name of God. Uh, the Hebrew alphabet has no vowels, so the consonants uh, for this name are Y-H-W-H, or Y-H-V-H. The exact pronunciation of this is unknown uh, because the Hebrew people would not use it, uh, because they considered this personal name of God to be so holy that they could not even utter it. It wouldn't be spoken aloud. And while that is Hebrew tradition, I don't think it's a sin to speak this name in reverence, as we should always speak God's name. And in fact, the Lord has become maybe a little too familiar to us. Uh, and in Isaiah, 
His name is used a lot. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to repersonalize this living guide back to us, to use my best pronunciation of Yahweh as we move ahead today in place of the Lord. So I pray that this will be a help to us. So Isaiah chapter 42 has four main divisions that I want to walk us through. Verses 1 through 9, uh, Yahweh speaks to his people the good news of his beloved son, the servant in whom God delights. Verses 10 through 13 is, are passages of, of praise and glory to Yahweh from Jews and Gentiles alike. Verses 14 through 17, Yahweh declares war on sin. And then verses 18 through 25, Yahweh speaks to his people the bad news of his coming judgment. So even though we're studying the whole chapter, and it's a long chapter at that, these opening lines make a little more sense to us if we rewind a little bit uh, to the end of the previous chapter. Because uh, remember, uh, they didn't always tie these things together in, in neat little uh, divisions. So in chapter 41, God comforts his people with the assurance of his salvation. But he also warns them to flee their idols. He also assures them of his judgment with respect to their embracing of these deaf, mute, inanimate idols and their rejection of the hearing, speaking, active God of all creation. Specifically, in the last part of chapter 41, starting at verse 21, God puts on, I love this, a mock trial of Judah's idols to allow them an opportunity to speak and to counsel him and to give him their opinions of unfolding events. Verse 21, set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, said the God, says the God of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Well, God continues from there, and in verse 28, he starts to conclude his prosecution of these frauds. He says, among these, meaning these people and their idols, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Now, remember what I said a moment ago about the chapter divisions. Verse 29 goes right into 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 1. He says in 29, behold, these, uh, they, these idols, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. These words, delusion and empty wind, are similar to words used in Ecclesiastes for vanity or a chasing after the wind. Now, that Hebrew word is hevel, like a flame blown out, like when you have a flame and you blow it out and, and the smoke rises and you try to grab that, that smoke and it eludes you. You can't, you can't possibly grab it, even though the wind moving from your hand pushes it away. Well, the Hebrew word here is avin, which, means, which seems to mean something more like to pant or to exert oneself, usually in vain, or to come to naught or to nothingness. It also means trouble and wickedness. And interestingly, it also refers to an idol. But now see the contrast as you move into verse 1 of the next chapter. And this is the start of our reading today. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Yahweh's servant is no vain idol that comes to nothing after much exertion. God himself upholds him. He has chosen him and his soul delights in him. 
He has put his spirit upon him to do his work. And unlike those idols and even his chosen people, this servant Messiah will do justly. In fact, when Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, which, we, which Caleb read this morning, and again at his transfiguration in chapter 17 of Matthew, a voice from heaven declared this very passage. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the rest of this opening passage, verses 1 through 4, are quoted directly in Matthew chapter 12 as proof that Isaiah, some 600 years beforehand, was promising the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And does this not describe exactly who Jesus was? And to put a fine point on it, Isaiah states that contrary to these worthless, vain idols embraced by Judah, the chosen one will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And this Jesus did on the cross when justice and mercy kissed, and he declared at last, it is finished. Isaiah then goes on in verses 5 through 9 to tell faithless Judah who Yahweh is, what he has done, and what he's getting ready to do. Thus says God Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. He is the creator of heaven and earth, the one who gave them their very breath and who gives them to spirit to walk in communion with him. And at the creation, he declared all of it good. Well, in this next verse, God is speaking uh, through, directly through Isaiah. And here's one of those pronoun shifts I was mentioning earlier. Once we see it, it'll make it clear what he's saying. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, for the people. Now, we might be expecting the Lord to be speaking to the people of Judah because he was previously speaking to Judah about the Messiah. But here, he is directly addressing the Messiah. And we know this because uh, the word you in this verse is singular in the original Hebrew, not plural as it is everywhere else where he's addressing the people of Judah or Israel. All four times in verse 6 are like this. They're all in the singular form. He lets his son know that I call you in righteousness. I take you by the hand. I keep you, and I give you as a covenant to the people. God keeps his promise to take Jesus by the hand and keep him after the devil tempts him in Matthew chapter 4. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God also keeps his promise to give Jesus as a covenant for the people when he gave us the new covenant. Unable to keep the old covenants, the Mosaic and numerous other covenants, God gave us a new covenant that he kept for us on our behalf, securing an everlasting relationship with him for all of eternity. In giving us this covenant, Jesus is a light to the nations, opening blind eyes and giving liberty to prisoners sitting in darkness. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light and has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, this we know in hindsight, but what about those who heard this long before it happened? What assurance would they have that this was true? How could they believe it? It is because of Yahweh's very authority and because of his past faithfulness. Verse 8 reads, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is his authority. It is his name. 
And then in verse 9, he says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is his faithfulness. This should give us great comfort to know that he will always do what he says, because he always has. Praise God. Praise God. And that is exactly what happens next. We move now from this initial good news of the Messiah's good work on our behalf to a praise song to the God of the universe. We will see that his actions on behalf of Jews and Gentiles alike is new and surprising. As such, it is worthy of a new song. Sing to Yahweh a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. Now, until now, songs of praise were mostly confined to the temple at Jerusalem by Jews. They sang so many of the psalms, especially the 15 songs of ascent, uh, which were songs sung with great joy as they made their pilgrimage to one of the feasts as they headed up, uh, as they ascended up into Jerusalem. They would sing these songs of ascent. Um, but now Isaiah promises that these songs and other new songs would be sung from wherever they were, by Jews and by Gentiles, by the nations. The whole world would join in songs of praise and glory, to this great God who saved them from their own sin. In fact, he is so deserving of praise that even if his people were silent, the very rocks would cry out. Why? Well, because remember, back in verse 6, God promises that his son would be a light for the nations, the nations other than Israel. The Chris showed us in chapter 3 of Ephesians that the Gentiles are surprisingly fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The geographical references here, like the sea, the coastlands, the desert, far-off villages, all evoke images of the glory of God covering the earth and all peoples. For example, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Kedar refers to a group of traveling Arabians who were enemies of Israel and Judah, even these people would lift their voices in praise to Yahweh. Selah refers to Edom, which are the people who descended from Esau, who forsook his own birthright in Genesis chapter 25 for a bowl of stew. He ended up losing his blessing and inheritance as the firstborn. And Malachi 1.3 says that God hated Esau compared to his love for Jacob. Yet even these people would at last be given an inheritance in the kingdom of light, an inheritance they did not deserve. Praise God. Now, I confess that sometimes I kind of unwittingly or subconsciously consider myself more like a Jew than as a Gentile, since I've been in the church essentially my entire life. I confess in my heart that I sometimes even kind of consider this a right. But I am a Gentile. I have no business being in God's family. God, because of his mercy and love, saw fit to graft me in to the vine of the Jewish people. So I, and so we all, should be singing a new song of praise for his loving kindness in making me, and you, fellow heirs and partakers of the promise. Bless you, Lord. 
But God ends this song with a kind of a strange twist, describing this readiness for war, stirring up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, and he shows himself mighty against his foes. Now, in one sense, his foe is the sin of his people that entangles them and pulls them away from them. He will surely declare war on that. But in another sense, he shows himself mighty against his foes, the people themselves, who have committed these acts of rebellion against him, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In his zeal, he calls these foes his friends. Jesus says in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you bondservants, for the bondservant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Wow. Well, this brings us to our third section, in which this high praise turns to dark trepidation as Yahweh declares war on the sin of his people. Look at verse 14. Now, you know, sometimes when someone is starting a conversation with you, you can tell by the first few things said and perhaps even their tone what kind of conversation this is going to be. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's probably somewhat discouraging for the opening line, especially from someone in some kind of authority over you, to be, for a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Yikes. He has given them more than enough time to repent, as stated in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. But now in verses 14 and 15, he paints a dreadful picture of the coming judgment. Judah is very familiar with warfare. They've had plenty of it in their history and even in relatively recent history to the time this was written. Armies on the move lay waste to the land. They level the country. They lay boats or islands across rivers for the advancement of the army. They also often salt the fields as they pass through so that any survivors, any inhabitants that are left behind might not be able to even grow sustaining crops. So God lays waste the things that we treasure more than him when he wants to advance the gospel to us. Sometimes he strips everything away to get our attention and force us to see the vanities in which we place our hopes in rebellion against him. Well, then starting in verse 16, God promises to rescue his people and lead them out of this darkness. This is what he did to Paul on the road to Damascus and what he did when he brought the Jews out of captivity in Babylon. In fact, quite literally, the Persians who conquered the Babylonians while the Jews were in captivity, right? So it was the Babylonians that came and conquered Israel and Judah, or conquered Judah, and took them out. And then in the meantime, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, right? So these Persians uh, built roads, and they sent the Jews back to their home on those roads. They had leveled a country and made passage back to Israel possible. And later, the Romans built a much better and more comprehensive road infrastructure, again, for the unwitting advancement of the gospel throughout the world. These are the things I do. This is God's character. You can bank on it. I do not forsake them. God comes after his people. However, those who continue to reject Yahweh in favor of idols, who willfully remain deaf and blind, who do not uh, who do not repent under his loving kindness, he does, not, he does forsake. He says to get ready because he is executing his judgment. 
For those who trust in idols, he will turn them back and put them to complete shame. He is getting ready to give them a final warning in this final section of this chapter. So starting with verse 18, God addresses his people once again. Some of them are continuing to reject and rebel against him by clinging to their deaf, mute, inanimate idols. Remember back in verses 6 and 7, when he promised them light and liberty through his beloved son? Well, they have said, no thank you to this gracious offer. And so he will pour out his wrath on them to stamp out their sin. Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of Yahweh? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Now here God is again speaking to Judah. The yous in here are back in the plural form, even though he's speaking to them as though they're one entity, right? So this is where it gets a little confusing. He says, my servant, my messenger, he. But all of these things are in the plural form, and so he's speaking to Judah. It is clear that Judah has chosen darkness, silence, and imprisonment again. Well, this speaks to us in our day as well. In John chapter 3, when Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, he says this. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, clearly, the people of Judah are running towards the darkness and embracing blindness. Verse 21 says that God was pleased to magnify his law and make it glorious for his people. Psalm 119 is all about this, how the law is a delight, a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. And one of the best ways to keep intruders out of your house or your business is to flood it with light. But in verse 22, because they refuse this light, this is a people plundered and looted, trapped in holes and hidden away in prisons with no one to rescue or restore them. Isaiah now pleads with his people to give ear to this, to attend to it, to listen for the times. But alas, very few will. Most will not, and they will pay for it dearly. Isaiah asks a rhetorical question next. Who gave them up to the looters and plunderers? Well, he answers by making it clear that it was Yahweh's doing, and it is fulfilled in righteousness because of the unrepentant sin of Judah. He says they have sinned against him. They refuse to walk in his ways. They would not obey his law. And even in the midst of actual judgment, they had become so dull of understanding that they would have no idea why this coming invasion of the Babylonians was even happening. They would not even learn the lesson that he was teaching them. And so this chapter closes on a bit of a downer note. It ends in a tragic promise of hopelessness. But one thing we know Yahweh does not punish without redemptive purposes in mind. He he means to purify his people and bring them back into light, into fellowship with him, into a life of liberty from the bondage of sin. Now, if you continue reading on into chapter 43, the words quickly transform back to words of comfort in redemption and sweet fellowship. But even if you were stuck on a desert island and you only had chapter 42 
at your disposal, you could circle back now to the beginning, to how the chapter began with words of comfort and courage in the promise of the coming Messiah. And in that knowledge, we can and must praise the Holy One of Israel, who transformed us from our futile ways, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ Jesus, his Son. So how about some application? How do we transition now into this wonderful portion of scripture into our lives, like Jordan said. What does this mean to you on a Tuesday morning? What does this mean throughout the week? So let me offer to you four applications for your consideration. First, kind of an easy one. Let us remember God's faithfulness to his promises. He is a good God. Let us remember that. How do we know what his promises are? Try reading your Bible every day. Do your Bible reading challenge or whatever other form of Bible reading you do. Get to know his promises and know his historical faithfulness to us in fulfilling those promises so that for his promises for today, we can again have confidence. In that remembrance, let us give him praise and glory in adoration. Voice to him your gratitude and wonder at his war on our sin. Now his, the third one is, his defeat of sin means life to us. We have crossed over from death to life. Walk in it. Be brave to share the gospel with someone. Sacrificially love others. Love one another. Love your neighbors. The fourth one is to search your house for idols. Look at them and acknowledge that they have no power to save you. Repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So I know you're looking at me now going, I don't really have any carved images up on my fireplace or hanging from the windshield of my car or in my bedroom or anything like that. No, most of us don't. I doubt any of us has any literal idols. But we first, class Amer first world Americans do have our comforts, our retirement plans, our air conditioning, our TVs, our social media, our health insurance. Throughout any given day this week, Try to focus on the things that you're doing and be observant of the things that you're doing that you normally do without even thinking about and consider whether there are certain kinds of idols in which you place your hope. Now, I want to be very clear to say I do not think that retirement plans or health insurance or TVs or air conditioning are evil things in and of themselves, and they are not necessarily idols. We can have them, but we must subordinate those things under Christ and not place our actual hope in those things. Our hope is only in Christ. So look at these things and acknowledge that they have no power to save you and repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, God of eternity, ancient of days, the heavens declare your glory, the earth your riches. The universe is your temple and your presence fills everything. And yet you, out of your own good pleasure, have created life and filled it with joy. You made us what we are, and you've given us what we have. In you, we live and breathe and have our being. You have set our boundaries and placed us in a good, fertile land. We thank you for your riches to us in Christ Jesus, for the clear revelation of him in your word, where we see his person, character, his grace, glory, humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Subdue in us our love of sin 
Show us our worthless idols and give us courage to get rid of them. We come to you in the all-prevailing name of Jesus with nothing of our own to plead, no works, no worthiness, no promises. We come to you for grace upon grace until every void made by sin is replenished and we are filled with all of your fullness. Let our souls delight in Christ, rely on him, and rejoice in him, and thus let us be united to him. And then for his sake, you, Father, will be well pleased with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.